Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. We are your hosts, Justin Horsall, and I have my dependable co-host, Luke Schantz, with me today. Luke, we're going to be talking about blockchain, the old block and chain, you know, distributed ledger software. The hype is over. Now we can finally get into the meat of it, which is I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of happy about. Who did you talk to, Luke? I had the opportunity to sit down with Horea Perutziu. I guess we were at OzCon, yeah. And his presentation was on zero to getting started. And then we also connected it to a number of different business use cases. I love it. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago and hosting a stage where startups pitched what blockchain project they were working on of all of the eight startups that were presenting them. There was only two use cases. So I'm so happy that you actually dig into just beyond supply chain, which seems to be kind of like the most top of mind thing and, and went into some other stuff as well. The big blockchain debate is always kind of like public versus private. Did you dig into that as well? or Absolutely, we did. And people do have that debate online all the time. But really, it's an apples to oranges. So I think from a, a technologist and a developer standpoint, the more we can really dig into the technology, fundamentally understand how it works, and then creatively think about how to apply it in our own businesses. Uh, that sounds really interesting. Let's let's get into that. So people are going to hear you interview Horea. He's a developer advocate at IBM working on Hyperledger Fabric. Let's get into it. Hello, Horea. Hey, how's it going, Luke? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So, just to get the conversation going, uh, I like to ask, uh, what's your tech origin story? What started you down the path that you're, you're going on in life now? Wow, okay, so I was not expecting that at all, but I'm pretty excited to share that story. I've always been pretty involved in, in tech. Growing up, I was also very into video games, and, and Mortal Kombat was like the, the game that kind of got me into video games. And I was always tinkering on computers and the computer guy, I guess, at home. And But then in terms of actually making it like a career or actually getting into it, I think there was a turning point in college. I remember I was studying uh, management science, which I still graduated with, and I was doing this financial advising thing. And I saw my mentor that I was working for, and he went to my college. He did my major. It didn't seem that interesting to me. And then I was like, I need to switch. Um, I need to do something different. Um, and I had talked to my family friends, my uncle working for Boeing, um, and he was working on the Mars rover. And I was just like, okay, some, you know, he's doing some things that are just, you know, literally out of this, out of this planet, basically, right? He's putting this machine um, on Mars. What I was doing essentially for that internship was just helping people figure out their taxes. There's got to be more interesting things to do. And at that point, I was like, I got to switch. So that's when I started getting to engineering. I started to get more involved in the tech community. And I switched into computer science. And that was the turning point when I caught that internship. And I was like, okay, if I stay on this road, I'm just going to be this person, right? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't you know, I want to, I want to do something more interesting. I want to do something more challenging and, and something, I don't, I don't know how to put it, but just something that for me, it seems like would have a bigger impact on the world. So I guess that was kind of the turning point for me. I had this long conversation with my uncle and he's like, look, if you don't like this path, you got to change it. And then that's when I, I got into computer science. A big part of it too, was getting 
a lot of friends in that community and speaking with them and hanging out. And that's what sparked my journey, I guess. That's really interesting to hear that the community was part of it, because now as a community organizer, and I know you're doing a lot of speaking, how did that come to be? How did you go from development into advocacy? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess speaking about community in general, I think what I really enjoyed about computer science is that I had such a tight and close-knit community in college where I was always working with people together on our projects. We were always in the computer science basement working on our things. And then after that, I joined and, and became a tutor for some of the computer science classes and helping out some of the professors. All the tutors kind of hung out, and it was an even closer kind of a community too, and I still keep in t- contact with them. Well, first of all, that's how I got my my, my job as well, is from um, there, was a, there was a job fair only for these computer science tutors, and there's a bunch of good tech companies there. And that's where I actually talked to IBM. And that's how I even got my job in the first place. From my interview, I think one of the, I think it was Jonas, one of the, one of the people that was working at IBM, maybe just saw my, my personality or my skill set, and they put me into that role. I had applied for a software developer role, but they put me into a developer advocacy organization. Let me have a little bit of flexibility in terms of like, you know, how much development do I want to do? And then also you should be going into the community and and speaking about what you're developing as well. So that brought me onto that path. And I'm still doing a lot of that stuff, but I I am focusing a little bit more on development. And that's kind of where I see my passion. I do love going to community events, but at this point right now, that's what I'm focusing most of my energy on. Well, you you gave a presentation here at OzCon uh, yesterday. Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you give me a little idea of what that was about? Sure, yeah. So my presentation yesterday was titled How to Build and Deploy Web Apps with Hyperledger Fabric. I wanted to take someone that's never heard about blockchain or maybe has very minimal knowledge in the area, and I wanted to take them through all the major concepts they need to know. How can they conversate with someone about blockchain? What would be a reasonable use case? What technology and and what framework would you want to use? What are the different types of framework? Which one should you pick for which use case? So I guess I wanted to take someone from very limited knowledge in that area and to get them to to build a a proof of concept or something that would be that would enable them to understand the technology but also show how it would bring value as well. That sounds like a great talk because as much as blockchain uh, and especially cryptocurrencies have been in the zeitgeist and, and everyone's aware of them, I'm actually surprised when I talk to folks how there is a lot of education that still needs to happen. It seems like we're past the hype cycle a little bit, and now we're getting to like the meat and potatoes era. Yeah, I completely agree. Because I think about a year and a half ago when I was going to conferences, it seemed that every single blockchain session was just, there's lines out the door. Like you couldn't even get into the session because it was so packed. And I think now, you know, there's still a lot of hype around blockchain, but I think it has died down a little bit. For me, that's completely fine in that the people that are very serious and that are doing it for the right reasons are still in it. And there does need to be a lot of education, you know, whether that's which type of blockchain, whether that's, you know, public or private, when should you even use it? Some people want to use it just because, oh, it's, you know, it's a big hype thing. Like we have to use all the greatest technologies, but a lot of times it just doesn't even make sense. I'm going to link your talk. I'm sure the talk from OzCon is going to be online. So I'll link that talk in the show notes, but maybe we could just do like a a quick version or, or to whet their appetite. So I'll take a step back real quick, and then we'll talk about public versus private, and then I'll go into Hyperledger as well. A key distinction in in the blockchain world is whether you should go for something that's a public network or a private network. The core of that is really the identity management. 
And in a public network, everything is anonymous. So when you're, so for example, a network like Bitcoin, which was the first real implementation of blockchain technology, that's a public network. And that when people hear about blockchain, they think about Bitcoin. And in Bitcoin itself, you have this anonymous transactions. You can see everything that's ever happened on that network, but it is anonymous. All you're seeing is this really large uh, string of random letters and numbers. So you can't really pinpoint a specific person to, to that identity. Whereas in a private network, someone is going to create the network and they'll invite people and someone has to approve or deny these people into the network. And for a business, a lot of times, especially for uh, more regulated industries, you need to know who exactly you're working with. So I think identity management in a public network, that's anonymous, whereas in a private network, these members are known. I think that's really important to understand. Going from there... Hyperledger Fabric is in this permission space, whereas Ethereum and Bitcoin are in this public space. So I think that is really important to understand. And then after you understand that, if you want, especially for a business, if you need a KYC, uh, know your customer, or you need more information about, I'm actually dealing with this person, that's when it makes sense to use Hyperledger Fabric. That's at least starting off, you need to know those key distinctions. In terms of Hyperledger Fabric, it is an open source technology framework, and it has been adopted by a lot of the cloud vendors, I think recently this year. And it is one of the fastest growing open source projects within blockchain as well. It's a general purpose framework to create smart contracts, to be able to send transactions to your smart contracts. It's customizable as well in that you can choose your consensus policy. So I want to step back a little bit. For anyone that, that doesn't understand how the consensus works, in a blockchain network, all the network participants, which are called nodes, they all have to agree on the next transaction. So the way that happens in a public network, in Bitcoin, for example, is that you have proof of work where you have to solve this very hard problem by essentially almost like cracking a password, you can think of it. And you're testing every single possible combination of this password. Once you get it right, you've achieved the proof of work, and then you can prove to the network that this transaction is valid. The downsides with this approach is that it takes a high amount of compute, and it uses a lot of energy. Usually the fastest computer wins because it's a brute force approach to solving a problem. There's no good way to solve it. So you're, you're literally just testing as fast as you can all these different combinations of this password to try to crack this proof of work puzzle. And for that reason, people are buying more and more advanced GPUs to have advantage to winning this puzzle. And then if they win this, they earn Bitcoin, right? So they earn money. So in a private network, there's no economic incentive in terms of, okay, we're going to earn Bitcoin if we're part of this network. It doesn't work like that in Hyperledger Fabric. So in a private network, there has to be some sort of business incentive, as in our business is more streamlined. We are able to be more transparent with our customers. We can show them exactly where this product has come from. We've saved time. We cut down the cost or something like that. There has to be some sort of a business incentive for people to join. So that's, that's also a big distinction in a public versus a private network. So jumping back into consensus, so we talked a little bit about proof of work in Bitcoin. In a private network like Hyperledger Fabric, you get to choose exactly who will have to reach consensus. Of course, that comes with a lot of pros and cons, because if you don't set up your network correctly and you don't design it or architect it correctly, it's not going to work very well. As a general rule of thumb, I would advise people to have at least the majority of peers. So you'll want to have at least four or five peers to have at least some sort of disaster recovery if one of the peers goes down or something like that. You want to have at least 
a few extra peers. And then also you'll want to have over 50% uh, of them agreeing on the next transaction. For example, let's say we have a five peer network. You'll say, you know, we need three out of five approvals before we can approve this next transaction on the network. If you want to make it even more secure in Hyperledger Fabric, you can customize that and say, look, we need every single person on the network to agree. So we need five out of five uh, nodes. Or if you're doing development for simply a development purpose, you can say, look, we just need one person to agree that this is the right transaction. And it's the network is going to be a lot faster, but it's not going to be as secure. And, and I don't recommend doing that in, in a production network, but for just testing and development purposes, I think that's fine. That is kind of how the consensus works, is that you get to choose, okay, I've created this network. I know these are the different companies in this network, and we need at least three out of five or four out of seven or the majority of these people to agree on this next transaction. So that's how this this consensus policy works. And that's what really at the core of blockchain is, do we all agree on this single source of truth that we can go back and audit and reliably trust that this we've all agreed on these transactions, this is what's really happened. And at the end of the day, if there's some sort of dispute, we, we have this transaction log that we know nobody is tampered with. So that's the core distinction and, and what really makes blockchain interesting for me as well. What would be some uh, like specific use case examples to help contextualize that a little bit? Uh, I know supply chain is often uh, mentioned, right? Or, or, or maybe banking, like you're saying, banking network. So how, like what, what is a use case of a smart contract over a private blockchain like this? Sure. Supply chain is the one that really helped me understand blockchain. And I think it's a really good way to start. And then we can go into some other use cases as well. In terms of Hyperledger Fabric, the way I think about it is that you can be as creative as you want. Really, any sort of systems that you have currently, you can really integrate and push data into the blockchain if you need to have an audit, audible, tamper-proof list of transactions. Going more specific into use cases, the one that really resonated with me was something like tracking chicken or poultry, in that there's been salmonella outbreaks, there's also been E. coli outbreaks in the news Having everyone of your suppliers on a network, manufacturers as well, the shippers too, I mean, having all of them send crucial, um, crucial data, whether that's how, what temperature the chicken was stored at while it was being shipped, which location was it shipped at, maybe there was a problem with this specific location, maybe there was a fire or something like that, what time did it reach the facility, when was it put on the shelves. So having this network where all of these people are in sync really helps when there is a dispute, when something goes wrong. When everything's going fine, it's nice to have, but it's much more useful when you need to audit. Okay, something went wrong, but where did it go wrong? What I've realized is that with the old way of doing things, there's a quote I've heard from Walmart, in that track and actually see where this crate of mangoes came from took them days up to like a week to figure out came from this shipper, which came from, you know, this country, which which got packaged on this date, which took them so long to actually call their suppliers and figure out all the tracing. But now once their suppliers, shippers and manufacturers are all on the same network, putting their own data or their own shipment details, manufacturing details, stuff like that, they're all inputting this data into the network. It's helpful for everyone because they're able to see did this manufacturer receive my shipment? So they'll get a notification if they did. Did something go wrong when maybe it was stored at too warm of a temperature or something like that? So it helps really a lot of the different parties involved. Another use case that I think was interesting as well 
So outside of the food supply chain, there's a lot of use cases within global trade. And there's a lot of containers that are being run through the ocean and a lot of shipping uh, ports and authorities don't have that much visibility into which containers are coming to their port. There's a new blockchain project which is working on this. This project essentially is putting all of these different companies on this network and all the shipping authorities. So, so there's going to be like the actual shippers, um, and then there's going to be the, sh- the actual port authorities. The port authorities now have greater visibility into exactly who's coming, and they have more time to see who's actually reaching their ports. Whereas before this blockchain network was implemented, they only knew maybe an hour in advance. Now they know 12 hours in advance exactly who's coming. Maybe they have much more than they anticipated, so they need to add more resources, add more employees that day. So that's another pretty good use case. Yesterday, what I had talked about is a voting use case, which I think is really interesting, especially with the election coming up in, in next year. So this one is a little bit different. And I had some really good discussions after the talk as well and exactly how you would architect a solution like this. In a voting use case, I think th- that would be really interesting too in that this is not, you know, this is not the perfect way to do things. I'm still, you know, figuring out what's the optimal way to architect the solution. But what I had talked about yesterday is you need to prove to the voter that their vote has actually been tallied and recorded, but you also cannot let other voters see another person's vote. So you have to somehow anonymize the data, but also prove to the voter that their vote has actually been counted. That is a pretty hard problem. And then also, you'll have to have some sort of identity management, of course, because you need to prove that this person is a citizen, that they're allowed to vote and and other things as well. That authentication piece is really important. And you'll likely need some sort of external organization, whether that's the government, whether that's the Department of Motor Vehicles, someone that can approve these voters onto the network. So I think this definitely makes sense for a private network, right? Because not everyone should be able to join, only people that are registered to vote. So I think this definitely makes sense in a private scenario. And then also being in a private scenario, you can trace back every transaction to a specific participant. So in a voting scenario, you can trace back each vote to a voter. So you can prove that this voter's vote actually counted and it's been tallied and that they haven't voted twice. Because if they did, you would be able to see on the network that, look, this same identity with this same public and private key has already voted twice. I mean, that's not valid. And of course, we talked a little bit about consensus, and that's how the meat and potatoes of blockchain. And this is kind of where it gets a little bit tricky. This is where you can really customize the solution is who actually has to approve these votes. So right now, I've seen the five major parties in the US, the Republican Party, Democratic Party, a Libertarian, Green, Independent. What I had suggested is that each of these parties has its own peer. So there'll be five peers, each party having its own peer, and they'll all be running a smart contract, which registers voters and also lets voters vote on the network. Also, there should be an external organization, whether that's the U.S. government, the Department of Motor Vehicles, they should have a peer too, and they should have that smart contract running so that they have a vote as well to be able to say that, yes, you know, this person should be approved or not. And then only once you reach the majority of votes, once four out of six of these peers um, approve this vote, only then will the vote actually be put on the network. And then you can also customize it even more if you want to give a little bit more maybe authority to the to the government side, you could also customize it and give them more peers as well and say that maybe you'll have six peers from the government, five peers from the actual political parties, and then you'll say something like, okay, we need at least four out of the six government peers to approve this, and then 
three out of five of the actual political parties to approve this. So again, that's also up to how you want to design the network. And that's what I think makes Hyperledger Fabric so interesting and so fun to work with is that really you can customize it for any sort of scenario and any sort of use case. It's really, I mean, the only thing that's stopping you is your own limits, really. That's why I really love working in this space so much too. And so while Hyperledger is open source and you could just download it and run it on your own system, how is it actually used in production, say, at an enterprise scale? What does that topology of that look like? Yeah, so normally when you get started with Hyperledger, you're running a very minimal network. So it's usually like one peer, one certificate authority, one order or node. That's enough to test your smart contracts, but it's not really enough to get a real consensus on the network because there's only one peer. So usually that's what you'll start with. And then you can alter some of the scripts within Hyperledger Fabric. So when you get started, they have a script to start up all these containers and you can modify that to create an even bigger network. And then in production, if you wanted to run this completely open source, you could. I don't know that many companies that have done that because it does get a lot more complicated once you start scaling up, once you have to manage all of these nodes, you have to manage the consensus, all the smart contracts and everything like that. That's why I've seen three or four cloud solutions for Hyperledger Fabric. And that's not only helping you with hosting, it's helping you manage all your nodes, it's helping you invite and scale your network, it's helping you monitor, it's helping you see and kind of visualize all the transactions a little bit easier. Start with your Hyperledger Fabric local network, you know, you start with a minimal network, you test your smart contracts, everything's working well. You see that it's actually bringing value too. You don't need a huge network to see that, look, this is actually bringing value. Um, we have this audible traceable log of all, all the things that have ever happened. And look, all these people need to see this if there's a dispute. Once you see that, okay, look, this actually brings business value. We all need to see these transactions. Then you can start thinking about a hosted solution. You can start thinking about the IBM blockchain platform. There's um, other, Amazon has a different uh, blockchain service as well. I think Microsoft has one too. So you can start thinking about that then. I think those are kind of the steps. So essentially what you said is exactly right. Hyperledger Fabric is open source. When we're talking about IBM blockchain platform, it's all running Hyperledger Fabric, but we're adding monitoring, we're helping you scale the networks, we're helping you with things that if you just only took the open source project, it would be a lot harder to do on your own. And it would just take a lot more time. So we're adding like a nice UI, some monitoring, and, and easier flexibility. So we're using Kubernetes, and you're using our data centers to actually deploy all these components, whereas you're kind of limited to your own data centers, of course, if you're working with one specific, if you're, with, if you're working with your own hardware. That's a big benefit, both scalability, and we offer support as well. IBM is the biggest contributor to Hyperledger Fabric, so, so they really understand it. They're the one that's created it, so they really understand it better than anyone else. So we offer support as well. If you need help, there's always going to be someone in the community that can help you there. That's kind of the progression. You start small, test everything, and then once you're ready to scale, once you see that everybody's on the same page, they're all ready to start a network, that's when you kind of start thinking about a cloud solution or where you actually scale everything, you get more monitoring. And in terms of getting started, so we've talked a little bit about Hyperledger Fabric. If you go to GitHub and you check out Hyperledger Fabric uh, samples, you'll see all the tutorials, and, and that's kind of the best way to start learning and get started. Once you've kind of played around with those smart contracts, I recommend the Fabcar one. That's a, that's a nice use case, and it's a pretty good one in terms of that it's simple. It's kind of like the hello world, a pretty nice way to get started. After that, a really good tool that I've been using to develop my smart contracts is the VS Code extension. So I highly recommend this tool in terms of 
of developing because if you just go to hyperledgerfabric.com and then download all their binaries and install everything, it is a little bit harder to kind of get started. But if you download this extension, the VS Code extension, it, if you just look up within VS Code IBM blockchain, um, you'll see the extension. And it actually is just spinning up a Hyperledger Fabric network for you, but it's just a little bit easier. So within a click of a button, as long as you have Docker installed and Node.js installed on your computer, it'll spin up the Hyperledger Fabric network, and then you're able to test everything within VS Code, which is really nice. And then once you're done, you see, okay, the smart contract works. We've tested everything. We've seen that there's no flaws or security vulnerabilities, et cetera. In the smart contract, you can package it up. It'll package all your contract files, whether you're writing it in Node or Java or, or Go. It'll package it into one smart contract file, and then you can upload that into the cloud and then install it on all the different peers. Using that extension, it's a really nice way to go from development to all the way to production, which is really nice. And if you want to try the cloud service, so, you know, you've developed, you've started testing your contract, you're like, okay, I want to get a little bit further, I want to get a little bit deeper technically into the space, we have a free Kubernetes service for 30 days, you can just grab that cluster, that's what I'm using to showcase my um, e-voting application, just to show that, you know, you can do this all for free, Um, so you start with that 30-day cluster, as long as you're running on the free 30-day cluster, the blockchain platform will be free as well. Because the blockchain platform works on top of Kubernetes. So you have to, when you create your blockchain service, you have to say, okay, which Kubernetes cluster will I deploy this to? If you deploy it on the free one, the blockchain network is free. So I highly recommend developers, one, once they're ready, once they, once they want to get a little bit deeper technically to try that out, we'll have that ready for everyone if they, if they need it. Thank you so much for listening. Check out other episodes at developer.ibm.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Music Store, and all of that goodness. You can find us at, at Luke Chance for Luke on uh, Twitter, and I'm at Juice10. Of course, Horea, you can find at, at Horea Porutiu. And if you'd like to learn more about Hyperledger Fabric, Hyperledger, of of course, is the foundation. Hyperledger Fabric is the project uh, that is at uh, hyperledger.org slash projects slash fabric. And we, of course, have included links in the show notes. Click, 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 click over there. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this episode.